everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mountain Stories podcast. I'm Brent Olson, one of the co-directors of the Institute for Mountain Research here at Westminster College along the Wasatch Front in Salt Lake City. Here at the Institute, we work to foster a mountain community of curious, engaged, committed people who want to learn more about mountain landscapes, the people who call them home, and the variety of ways we incorporate those landscapes into our lives. Here on the podcast, we want to share mountain stories, the research people have done, the lives they've led, and the adventures they've had in the mountains around the world. In today's episode, we're going to have a look at the work that Round River Conservation Studies has been doing to work with local people to promote conservation of big, wild landscapes around the world. Round River's work is incredibly varied, but today we're going to focus primarily on their study abroad programs. Here at Westminster, we've had the chance to partner with Round River for a number of years, and each time one of our students comes back from their trip, I make a point to try to sit down and hear about the work they've done, and I'm thrilled to see how much they've learned and grown as a result of the experience. Over the past couple of weeks, I had a chance to sit down with a number of folks with a wide variety of experiences, and we'll get to share those stories with you today. First is Elizabeth Brenner, who's been an instructor on Round River programs around the world, and here she talks about her experiences in those programs, what she's learned, and what students can expect on a trip. We'll also get some student perspectives from Kelsey Barber and Rain Keating, who just returned from programs in the Taku and in Mongolia. And finally, we'll hear from Frank Black, who spent part of a sabbatical with the Round River program in Patagonia. Together, through these stories, I think you'll get a sense of the kinds of work Round River does in order to work with local folks and preserve mountain landscapes. And you'll get to hear about how this work can not only make a difference on the ground, but also in the lives of young people. Thanks for listening. First up, here's Elizabeth. So my name is Elizabeth Brenner, but in the field, I usually go by Ellie, which is sort of my nickname in Latin America. So if you talk to folks who know me in the field, that's that's what they'll call me. I've been working for Round River for about six years now, uh, which has been an amazing journey. And it actually didn't start six years ago. I actually was a student with Round River uh, in 2009 in on our Ecuador program, which has since closed, um, but up in the mountains outside of Cuenca in the Nudo del Asuay. And that was a really incredible experience for me as a student. And so I always had it in my mind that working with Round River would be a very cool thing. So when I finished my graduate work, which was in chemical oceanography uh, at Oregon State, I saw that Round River was hiring for a position in Patagonia. And I was very excited to get back in the field because I'd spent a lot of time in the lab. Uh, for my research. So I applied for it, had to convince them pretty hard to <laughs> to let me come work there. And I ended up working on the Patagonia programs for Round River for about four years and then as an instructor and then transitioned to working sort of in the Latin America programs in general between Patagonia and Costa Rica, I'm trying to get our Costa Rica programs off the ground. And then more recently, I sort of fell into a role of filling in where instructors were needed on some of the other programs. So uh, last year, I had the opportunity to teach in Botswana and this summer uh, also in Mongolia uh, on our, our newest program there. And then now, actually, I'm just transitioning into sort of a more administrative role. So um, I'm now a programs coordinator and I'm helping to sort of coordinate all of these programs that I used to spend time in the field on. Uh, so that's that's also a new journey for me. What was it about your experience as a student that you were like, yeah, I definitely want to 
being the instructor? I think, you know, it was everything. And I'm sure you've heard this when you've talked to other students who have been on the round over programs. It's, it's just a very different kind of experience. It just feels so much more real than some of the academic exercises I had been doing until that point. You know, when you get out into the field and you have some project partner, some, you know, in this case, it was a local NGO saying, we need these data. Like, what is the answer to this question? We need to know what is happening with these spectacled bears in this area. You are, you're so much more motivated to answer those questions. Um, so it really was like this feeling of suddenly feeling useful. Like the things that I was thinking about abstractly in classes suddenly had this application that was something that I cared about. Uh, so I think that was, that was it. I mean, certainly being out and living in the mountains was incredible. Uh, but <laughs> and, um, yeah. In terms of working with local partners, whether those are NGOs or ranchers or you know, rangers or whoever, what are some experiences or things that have happened where you've really made connections or learned or sort of built on their enthusiasm or values or like stuff that they're working on? That's a good question. Yeah. And and it's funny because in everywhere that we work, you really have to go in with this open mind, uh, both both with Round River and, and other sort of international experiences that I've had. When you end up as a guest in someone else's land or in someone else's somewhere that they feel a lot of ownership over, you really sort of have to step into their worldview and what's valuable and important to them about the landscape and what they take from it is not necessarily what you would expect to be important to them if you, you know, as you come in. So maybe it's important because they can, in the case of where we work in Patagonia, some of the glaciers are important uh, that are coming off of the Southern Patagonian ice field for tourism opportunities for some of these towns, but also they're important sources of fresh water. And, you know, there's just all sorts of different reasons why people are attached to different places. Or in Mongolia, folks are really concerned about good pasture for their animals, for their livestock, which are their livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there have been a couple times when I've come into a situation sort of thinking like, oh, well, it's going to be it's going to be important to these people that this aspect of the property is maintained or this is an important cultural aspect to them. And it turns out that it's something else entirely uh, that they've been thinking about or that's important to them. Uh, An example I'll give is some of the some of the folks who we've worked with in Costa Rica, actually, on the Costa Rica program. We were working with this payments, sort of innovative payments for environmental services program called the Fondo de Biodiversidad Sostenible. And with that program, we were invited into various properties around the country where they were receiving payments and to do these rapid biodiversity assessments on these properties. So we got to stay with each family, like sort of living on their porch or in their living room or on their front lawn with them for a week or so and interview them about what was important about their property and why, you know, they chose to enroll in the program and what they what their vision for the future of keeping it an intact ecosystem was. And through that process, through those interviews, it was so clear that their connection to the land didn't really have much to do with these payments that they were receiving, which aren't truly enough, especially on some of these smaller properties, because it's based on the hectares of the property. They're not enough to make a living off of. 
So it's about the connection to that land. You know, we were working with one family where his brother and sister had enrolled this property that had belonged to their family and in particular to their father who had put his life into it in this payment service. And through us visiting the property, they were connecting back with their childhood. You know, they'd gone off to college, they'd gone off to have these careers, but coming back to visit the property with us, they were seeing it through these sort of new eyes of like using it as a way to honor their memory of their father, which was a, we were looking at that property when we first came in from sort of this like landscape perspective, like, oh, this is like a good secondary forest. It's a good, it's closer into the city, but it's a good like corridor. There's going to be animal movement through here. There's like a water source. We're interested in what, you know, this is going to provide for the greater landscape ecosystem context. But when we got on the land with them, it was like, this is the watering hole that we used to have the cattle on. This is where, you know, this is the tree that he used to sit, sit under. He planted these, you know, and it was all about their connection to it. And it made our experience on that particular property so much more powerful because of that little connection that they had to it, much more so than we would have expected from, you know, looking at the characteristics of that particular piece of land from our mapping perspective like watching students go through this process do you see like how do you see them grow and changes as they sort of see these kinds of things happen it's it's wonderful it's so cool um the students are so open to connecting with the local people who are working with whether it's you know the homestay families that they're staying with in patagonia or the guarda parques that we're working with in patagonia as well, the rangers that we're working with in Mongolia, the escort guides in Botswana, you know, all of these groups that the students have a chance to interact with, by far and away, it's their favorite part of the program. You know, they don't want to hear from me. <laughs> never. It's never that way, right? Yeah. And, for me, least, and I, I don't want to hear from me either, no. right? I, <laughs> and I feel like I can say a thousand things in a class, like say the same thing over and over a thousand times in the class. And then like some rancher says exactly the same thing. And they're like, Oh yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> no, no, no. And that's exactly it. And I, I, it's funny. You, I'm sure you get this a lot. You, cause as teaching, but one thing I sort of had to realize when I started teaching with Round River is that, um, this is teaching in general is that when people are really listening, the students are listening, they have these like blank faces that looks like they're super angry and not paying attention at all. But that means they're actually listening. So you don't get that feedback. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Right. Um, but then you, you hear, you know, you're like, okay, well, we talked about this one thing, blah, blah, blah. Three weeks later, you're talking to that student and they bring up something from that conversation <laughs> that's totally been in, assimilated and is now part of their worldview and like what they're incorporating into the way that they're, you know, looking into a new situation. And you're like, oh, they were paying attention. Mm-hmm. But it takes a long time to get there if you're talking about it in this sort of academic way. But having one conversation with one of the pobladores who's been living on the side of this glacier for 30 years and watching it recede. It's so much more powerful than however many papers we can read about climate change. So one of the places that we work in Patagonia is um, 
on the side of one of these glaciers, all of the glaciers in the Southern Patagonian ice field are receding rapidly, but one, this one is receding particularly rapidly. And we have stories of one of these pobladores whose family has lived at sort of the mouth of where that glacier comes out into Lago Higgins for at least his whole life, right? You know, like a generation and a half. <clears throat> and he has, you can walk up there now and look down over the glacier. It's receded way back, you know, a kilometer or two into the distance from now. You can see it. You're staring down maybe 2,000 feet to the water on this like steep, steep eroding slope that doesn't have any vegetation on it anymore. And this guy is telling us like, well, you know, 40 years ago when I was growing up, the glacier filled this entire valley and we would take our cattle over the frozen surface of the glacier, just walk straight from here to the other shore on the other side to graze them in the wintertime when it was cold enough. There weren't any crevasses. There, everything was just filled in with snow and ice. And so they could literally walk like 2, their cows. feet of ice. Yeah, kilometers, yeah. kilometers of ice. And, and depth, too. And depth, yeah. Uh, I probably have these numbers wrong, but yeah. it's not that far off from probably not a full kilometer of height, but like 400 meters of height of that glacier, maybe a full kilometer of height, actually. It's a really, really deep channel there. It's one of the deepest lakes in the world, actually. And so when you're standing there and looking out over it, it's like, well, we used to do this. You're like, oh my gosh, this landscape has changed so much. And hearing that from him, you know, it was powerful for me. It was powerful for the students. I don't think anyone standing there is going to forget that. Um, and probably every time they hear about glaciers receding, they're going to think about that. How are has your experience on the different programs been different? That's a great question. And I'm so I'm really glad <laughs> that you have already chatted with someone who's been up on the Taku because that's the one program I haven't been on. So I don't want to um, not give it its full due, <laughs> right. but I can't speak to Taku. Um, there's funny. It's funny. There's like they're both wildly different based on the personalities, the people who are leading them just everything about the reality of being in the field there. And also there's some things that are in common between all of them. The biggest difference I think is this like dichotomy between the cold places and the warm places like Botswana and Costa Rica have a lot more. So we don't have our Costa Rica program anymore. Unfortunately, we closed it last year. Uh, but those two are like, warm and hot and all of the things that you're dealing with are like it's too hot we have to cool down but you have much less gear gear is like not very important like in, in the costa rica program we actually told people like students you know when we had our calls with them before they came down like don't bring anything you like <laughs> like bring <laughs> like bring stuff you don't like old t-shirts that like are from some fun run that you did <laughs> that's what you want to bring <laughs> Whereas Mongolia and Patagonia, and I, I imagine Taku as well, you're really dependent more on the gear that you bring. So that lends a different flavor to the program. You're sort of battling against or trying to stay comfortable against very different kinds of elements, against cold and wind and rain uh, in different ways. Once, probably most dramatically, I think we were there six extra days beyond what we had planned to be there for because a storm came in and they closed the port so the boat that was going to come get us was delayed and couldn't leave port to come get us. Um, so those things definitely happen, right? It's, it's more inclement. But also the culture is different in all of these places. So because we're taking our cues from the 
people who have invited us in and the organizations that we're working with, in some ways we're adapting our priorities and how we live. Not in some ways. We are adapting our priorities for like what's important in in a day, what we're going to get done, the structure of a day, what we're eating and how we're living and like what they want done to what they are, are saying is important. And those things are so dramatically different in the different locations. Yeah, you can have more personal experiences with wilderness on the Mongolia and Patagonia and Costa Rica programs than you can in Botswana, just because Botswana, there's so many safety concerns about being out in the bush. I actually wouldn't characterize our um, camps in Botswana as compounds. Uh, they, we really, they're sort of more like mobile camps. Like, it's true that once we set up camp, you, we're, we're stuck around the vehicles because, you know, you wander off too far and then, yeah. you know, you start looking no, way too tempting. No, we don't put fences up. Uh, Yeah. So that's actually why you can't wander off. If there was a fence, then you could wander within that fence, you know, as much as you wanted. But because there are no fences, you know, we have elephants walking through the camp at night. We have hyenas walking through the camp at night, being curious, sniffing around things. So like the three things I love about Red River, like is the contact with nature and the sort of conservation work you do that matters and is important the way you respond to local concerns and sort of are built on that invitation and mm-hmm. those local needs. I think that's a super important conservation model, but also just the kinds of group building that happens among students. So can you talk about um, like what those groups of students look like and learn and like how they become a crew, like how they become a community of, of folks engaged in this work? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the coolest things about working in the field. Renover is getting to know the students and seeing them come together into these cohesive groups that really go through some incredible stuff together and support each other to get incredible work done. Mm -hmm. It's funny. A lot of people ask me, you know, like, oh, are there a lot of romances among students? And the answer is not really. I mean, certainly they do happen sometimes. That's been my experience with these kinds of things too. (laughs) They're like, why? Someone described me as like, it's like dating your cousin. Like, exactly. exactly. And, that's, and that's just it, right? You get these groups of students and, you know, yes, they're all young and smart and interesting. And there's, you would assume that they would find each other attractive, right? right. But they dive so deep into this like intimate group living experience so fast that all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're like siblings. <laughs> like, yep. like we just dug that poop hole together <laughs> again <laughs> and, and they get so close so fast, but, but really in cool supportive ways. So, and some groups end up sort of forming like a couple deep friendships within the group that are really wonderful. And some have like this whole group dynamic. Uh, and I know of a couple groups, there's one in particular, I think was a Namibia group a couple years ago where they had a reunion tour um, many years later, eight years later or so after they'd been in the field together and they all flew back together and they met up with their former instructor and, you know, traveled around for like That's a week, awesome. which is cool. You know, when you think about the important, like how hard it is to get, you know, eight people to take a week out of their lives once they've sort of started other careers and moved in other directions, that it was such a powerful experience that they did prioritize that and take the time to come back and do that again. Like it's, it's cool. We've had student groups that 
were really committed to keeping everyone like just sort of bringing everyone up to that level to, to sort of supporting everyone. You know, when someone was having a bad day, everyone's like, we're going to, you know, we know you really like chocolate cake, so we don't really have any cake, but we're going to try and we're going to, you know, do this frosting situation, which is you know, it's, it's a disaster, but it involved peanut butter and sugar. So we're going to eat it anyway. And we used the last of the butter. So everyone's going to like it. Okay. Um, but really supporting each other in that way. And that's so cool to see. Gosh, we had a group of students who wanted everything to be fair. Everyone had the same, you know, because they have a like tour system for when who's going to be cooking and cleaning and whatever. And they also had this group was doing a ton of backpacking. Um, this was in Patagonia. They had a system for who was sharing tents with who. And they wanted it to be so fair that they had to have each student have exactly the same number of nights sharing tents with each other student in each tent because some of the tents were better than others. And at some point we had to interfere and be like, hey, um, he's too tall for that tent. Like <laughs> his feet and head are touching and getting the sleep bags getting soaked from the condensation. Like <laughs> that, that combo is not working. <laughs> Um, but it was all about the, like making sure that they, they had that equality, which was cool. Cool. Um, so on a personal level, like one of the questions I'm always curious about is like, why do these landscapes matter for you? The places that Round River works and I've had the privilege of leading in with Round River are incredible places in the world. These are some these are places that really, and, you know, we talk so much in the field about what is wild and what is wilderness. And, you know, that's one of the big prompts that the students do. And so, you, you know, sometimes when you talk about things, you're like, I don't have the right words for this, but they're wild. They're, they're wild places that humble you. Uh, and that experience is extremely valuable. And I have really, the more that I've done it, the more I'm impressed by that experience. Something happens when you transition from thinking about wilderness, when you're in a wild enough landscape that you transition from thinking about wilderness as something that you can recreate in, that you can visit, that's some last remnant, to thinking about it as the fabric of the world that, you know, all of these more urban situations have been plopped on top of. It's a, it's a cool transition and you can think about it intellectually like, oh yeah, of course I knew that. Like even when I said it, it probably sounds stupid, but somehow when you're out there, you're, you suddenly have that shift or not suddenly it happens sort of gradually over time, but there are moments where it hits you more where you're like, oh, this rock formation continues under this whole valley. And that valley is, you know, yes, it has fertile soils in this part for this reason. And that's how I interacted with it over there. But now I know that, you know, the flooding history of it and how that interacts with the, you know, ice age cycles or these various glacial like outbursts, floods or, you know, all of these things that you start understanding about the landscape. It just gives you different lenses to see it. And for me, I think the other thing that's been really cool about getting to live in these places is another sort of transition in, in, in viewpoint where you transition from thinking about wilderness or being out in nature as sort of a, a fair weather thing 
where you can just go home when you need to, to being suddenly the fabric of the world that you're in. So you can't go back into a house and turn on your computer. You have your computer with its last 20% of battery in your tent and you're desperately hoping and sort of trying to shield it with your shoulder so that the drips from the top of the tent aren't dripping onto the computer because you really need to, you know, look up this one moss that you're trying to have a conversation with someone about, you know, when you leave the tent to go have that conversation. You know, you end up having to be really inconvenienced by what's, you know, living in more rustic conditions or not having access to these things that we sort of grow up in, in our world as having access to. And once you've made that transition, you're sort of like, oh, great. Well, I'm just living in this now. So this is just the world. You also sort of have this perspective shift where you stop thinking about it as this always wonderful thing. And you're like, man, it really would be nice to have some steady power right now to, <laughs> so I could grade these papers. And I would love to not be rained on anymore. Like my if feet are just shut up. So happy. <laughs> like my feet are, are wet and, and cold and have been for, for quite a while. Um, or it's given me, I think, so much more just that taste of it that I've had because I, I didn't grow up there. I still have a house to come home to. Um, so much more, not sympathy, but empathy for the perspectives of people who do live in these landscapes and don't have safety nets that are not that. So, so they're viewing the wilderness as all of the resources that are available to them, right? You know, they're harvesting wood so that they can have enough money to buy the medicine that they need for their liver cancer or whatever, you know, is, is happening. And when you aren't yourself at the mercy of those things and you're not relying on the environment for your physical needs and safety, then it's so easy to be like, oh yeah, like that's fine. They can just find something else to eat or find some other way to make money. But even just the taste of it to be out there and then also just to spend time with folks who that is their everyday reality. You're like, Oh, right. <laughs> right. This isn't just like, Oh, they're relying on the lands. Like, Nope, that Jaguar ate their last pig. Now they don't have meat for the month or Christmas period. Like that's. And then, then you get to talk about like, so what does it mean to ask people to live with predators? Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, that's a hard, like it's an easy ask for us here in the middle of the city. Yeah. Like, you're out there. It comes a different question, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you want to talk about some of the science work that gets done that you've done out there, what that has meant? Sure. Sure. Well, this is actually sort of a hard question because one of the cool things about this position and working for Renover is the diversity of projects that you get to work on and that we, we do work on. So just sort of a sampling of them, you know, oh, you already heard some about Taku and Mongolia. So I'll just tell you about the research projects we're working in in Costa Rica most recently. Um, so the last semester we were working in Costa Rica, we had a research project that I already talked about a little bit, which were these rapid biodiversity assessments on family farms or properties that were enrolled in the Fondo de Biodiversidad Sostenible, uh, Sustainable Biodiversity Fund Payments for Environmental Services Program. We also were doing a specific research project looking at um, 
a population of yellow-billed Kutinga, which is a canopy frugivore. It's a bird that uh, specializes in mangroves, lives in mangrove systems, and requires intact mangrove systems adjacent to intact primary rainforest and has a very small range. So it's an endangered bird that we spent um, a couple weeks trying to survey for in their breeding season to look at what the sort of current population is and what the recruitment to the new population could be. You know, how are they breeding? Is this population breeding? And so that involved kayaking around the mangroves uh, at sunrise every morning and trying to watch them from the bridge above and just trying to spot every single one that we could. This is a hard uh, bird to work with because, as I mentioned, they're canopy frugivores, which means uh, they eat fruit. They live high up in the canopy. They have no known calls. <laughs> and they're not that big <laughs> or flashy. <laughs> so you're sort of craning your neck from a kayak looking for little white footballs rocketing around uh, up above. So that was a fun project. We also had a project um, which is a little bit more in line with my background, actually, because I'm a marine scientist by training, um, looking at a coral reef system in the inner Golfo Dulce, where we were um, helping our partner Osa Conservation, Conservación Osa, out doing some preliminary surveys in a pretty degraded reef system in advance of some restoration work that they were going to be doing there. So that was snorkeling around and trying to like look at substrate, uh, you know, trying to snorkel down and lay a chain, you know, identify all the different invertebrates. And that was that was some pretty fun field work. We also had a project looking at dung beetle diversity as an indicator of uh, forest health. So we were looking at, we put out these dung beetle traps in uh, primary forest and secondary forest and these grassland areas and different regeneration uh, sort of schemes to look at how that reforestation and restoration was progressing. Uh, and working in tropical rainforest is so cool because they just grow so fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in the time that I'd been working down there, you know, a couple years, I'd seen plots that had gone from pure grass to having these balsa trees, which are incredibly fast growing, but, you know, they're 10 meters high already and providing a closed canopy. And then to see those effects in the invertebrate communities was just so cool. Dung beetle research is a little... Uh, exciting if you haven't heard about that before because really the best bait for dung beetles is human feces <laughs> yeah so so those field days were always exciting and did we have any other research projects that semester no i think that was the bulk of them so that was just one semester's worth of research projects you know a wide range of different things in other project locations we'll do bird surveys sort of to look at all the different birds in the area like you know, to get a list going, or we'll be surveying for a particular suite of birds, you know, birds of concern, noting every time they're there. Or in Mongolia, for example, we're doing breeding bird surveys for a couple of birds of interest that breed in this lake system in the Darhad Valley. For plant surveys, we do a lot of all plant inventories, like what are all the plants in this location? That We're doing that in Mongolia and in Patagonia. We're sort of writing and have been for many years writing a plant guide to um, Parque Nacional Bernardo Higgins, where we work in Patagonia. That's a project that I've been, was involved with a lot when I was working down there and it was a really fun one. It is not just walking around talking about what is nature. It is, what are all of these butterflies here? We are keying them out. It is, you know, what we're making occupancy models for, you know, 
pika in talus areas within the Hordo Sardug strictly protected area in Mongolia. We're doing camera trapping to look at mammal diversity in a lot of our different program sites in Botswana. We have a pretty complicated methodology where we're systematically surveying herbivore densities, um, but every six months we'll go back and do that exact same transect. And so we have, you know, years of data at this point, which uh, can actually give an idea of how these uh, herbivore populations are changing with time. We're really excited to be offering a program in Belize. It will be our newest program. Uh, with closing the Costa Rica program, we have a lot of interest in Central America and in Central America system. So we're excited to be moving into Belize. That our project partners down there are doing some really cool work. I think that program is going to be a good mix of terrestrial and marine. I think maybe more so even than our Costa Rica program, which did have a snorkeling component that I already talked about. The Belize program is going to be venturing a little more into the marine side of things. What exactly it's going to look like, exactly which research projects the first group of students will be doing, mm -hmm. I think is still a little up in the air. Um, but it's an incredible system. I was actually just talking today, with, this morning on my way here with a former instructor of ours who did her master's research in that area, in that part of the world. And she was like, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. It's so incredible. There's so many tapirs. Like, <laughs> you guys are going to have a blast. Nice. Uh, what advice would you have for students thinking about it or going on trips? Maybe I'm going to give some, uh, you'll get plenty of advice from the other students about what to pack. And if once you get a student to the point of like they've signed up, then we can talk about packing. They'll probably talk to me about it and I'll tell them what to pack. But I think the more important thing to convey is that Round River is not like Round River semester study abroad programs are not the same thing as drinking wine in France. Like, so if, if you want to go drink wine in France, do that. <laughs> Do that. And this this is not for you. But if instead the idea of really working in conservation, getting a very real authentic experience that is I'm not sure how many times I can say real. <laughs> but but if 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 that idea is appealing to you, then everything else will sort out and you should just come on a round of a program. And, and in my experience, that's actually how we get most of our students is there aren't really any, any, not that many who are sort of on the fence about whether it's a good idea for them. They'll either like hear about it and say, yes, that's for me. I'm doing it. Or it won't really make much of a difference on them. And so once, once you have someone who sort of hears about like, oh, yes, that's for me you basically can't convince them out of it. They're coming and it's going to be an amazing experience for them. I know that's how it was for me when I was a student thinking about coming on a round river program. I was actually already a senior in college and didn't, I mean, I had the time available and I didn't need any extra classes. I was thinking about graduating early instead. Um, and I was talking to this guy who I met at a party, who's a friend of friend who'd been to Namibia with round river. And he was like, you will love this. You should do it. It's for you. It's for you and people like you. And from that moment on, I was like, okay, well, I guess I have to. I'm just going to go do it. <laughs> but I think that that actually is what, what happens with students who are interested in the programs is they hear about it and they're like, well, this is, maybe it sounds a little scary. Maybe it sounds a little bit like a step above something that they would feel comfortable doing. But if it sounds intriguing, you should definitely come do it. <laughs> 
I'm Kelsey and I'm a physics major here at Westminster and I have an environmental studies minor which is why I was able to do Round River. So I guess like the main draw for me for the program was I was interested if I'd actually like enjoy like a career in a field like conservation biology and so it was kind of just like um, learning from experience whether that would be something that I'm interested in. I think that Round River is a super beneficial program in that sense that you really get an understanding of what it would be like to do research in the field as a career. And I'm Rain Keating. I went to the Taku River program. I'm an environmental science major. And the reason I chose the Taku is because I love salmon and steelhead and the Taku River is home to thousands of salmon and steelhead. And uh, it was a pretty incredible experience being up there. And as Kelsey said, a lot of a lot of field work experience, if that's what you're trying to get into, this is super beneficial. Mm -hmm. I chose Mongolia, I guess like partially because I'm very interested in like history and particularly like uh, historical narratives that are not traditionally shared in our American school systems. Mongolia just has a super rich history with Chinggis Khan and um, all of the Mongols. That was definitely a draw, but also with the program in Mongolia, you work with, it's, uh, I think it's called the Wolverine. I wish I could remember what it's called right now. Yeah, the Wolverine, it's like a conservation something. Yeah, but I was super interested just in kind of seeing how that program worked and a program that's so well established within like a community and a location and seems to actually be doing like beneficial conservation research. Uh, I've really enjoyed, we were doing an ungulate survey throughout the summer. We'd go out a, a lot and, and, you know, just sit down somewhere with a good view and look for caribou and stone sheep and mountain goats. And they've done it previously just to record their own data. But this time we were doing it to try to set it up so that the, uh, the Taku or the Taku River Clinket can send out their own surveyors and start monitoring the ungulates themselves. That was probably the highlight of the field work we did for me. That was incredible. I think the highlight for me was uh, the butterfly research that we did, probably just because that was what I was in charge of and that was like my big project for the trip. I think that what made it really special was that there isn't a lot of research done on like butterflies anywhere really, but especially in the Darhad Valley, like they don't have like a species list for the area um, and they don't have good ways of like monitoring populations or elevational ranges for a lot of butterflies which are on the red list. We got to research some Parnassius butterflies, uh, six species that are red listed, look at elevational uh, zones for them and plant associations. That was just very interesting to be like, kind of like on the forefront of what hopefully will be uh, large projects in the future. In Atlin, which is in British Columbia, Northern British Columbia, and that's where you are situated and home-based for the program, you see the Tacker River Clinket members driving around town or maybe you're walking around and we'll have, uh, well, we had some informal dinners, of course, very respectful to them and they're awesome. Round River has been in Atlin for a while now, so they're pretty established. And some of the members like Brian Jack are just awesome. They took us out in a boat and showed us some really cool 
some really cool pictographs along the lake on the far side. Mm -hmm. And they're just very welcoming. They, they let us come to their salmon celebration, which was in Carcross in the Yukon. And they, they're really great, really awesome people, super knowledgeable. What happened at the salmon? Um... So they, it's a three-day celebration, and there are three different Clinket tribes in the area. They throw a celebration, and each night one, one, uh, one tribe hosts it. And our night was salmon, of course. So they made this really, this really nice uh, wreath for the salmon. It's a traditional way to thank the salmon, and they released it into the, into the lake. And it was great. We had live music and heard stories and saw traditional dancing. It was really fun. There were a lot of people. And I helped cook. Helped cook for <laughs> like a thousand people. <laughs> I've never done that before. That's incredible. <laughs> Our work was primarily with rangers, um, just because the area that we work in in Mongolia, it's um, it's a strictly protected area, meaning that you can only really be in the area to do conservation research or to like protect the land in any way. Really, the only people that are in these strictly protected areas are the rangers and that kind of community. So yeah, we essentially were just working with the rangers. We did have a couple of days with the community. So we also um, got to attend some like traditional ceremonies. So we got to attend a Nadam, which is like um, a celebration of summer, essentially. So they have like um, horseback races and archery competitions and uh, wrestling. And so it's a huge community event. And so we actually got to go be a part of that. That was incredible. Did you um, horses? No, we didn't. We did ah. get to shoot arrows. <laughs> so I wasn't complaining. <laughs> it was really, really interesting. Also, the community, they, uh, it was mostly the rangers, but they threw a traditional Mongolian barbecue for us, which is essentially where like you take a, one of those like milk, um, metal milk cartons and you throw a bunch of meat and vegetables and hot rocks in there and then you like let it cook for a while and then everyone like shares all of the food. So that was really special too. Out in the field, we were with the rangers a lot. We got to know a lot of like the plants in the area through the rangers and a lot about species and where certain animals would be. So they knew a lot about pika, which is one of the projects that we did serving pika. And um, so they knew a lot about where the pika would be versus where they wouldn't be. Just like in the evenings, we would like sit around with the rangers and do song and poem exchanges, which was really, really incredible. And they would make us darhad tea, which is tea made out of um, like the plants in the area. And we would make them hot chocolate. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. <laughs> so in Mongolia, what did it look like where you guys stayed? Did you move around or did you have one home base? Because in Atlin, it's an established town. There's an established a town. market and everything and there are shops. It's an old mining town. Okay. But I'm wondering what it looked like in Mongolia. Yeah, we um, we didn't get to move around that much. Most of the time we were in the Mongosh drainage. And so it's like a mountainous area with a lot of like uh, high elevation meadows and things like that. And then the Mongosh River like runs down kind of past our camp. Our base camp is about like 10 miles out of a town called Ulan Ul, 
but that's like the closest place and that's where the park headquarters are. We did get to go down to the step for a small portion of our time there and that was to do bird surveys actually. So down on the step there are a lot of like um, lakes that are potentially really important to a lot of migratory birds. We got to go down and survey each lake for birds and then I guess the other place that we hit was um, the high elevation like plateaus and meadows where we were really surveying for um, butterflies in that area and also looking at higher elevation talus patches for pika. So yeah, we kind of like moved around a little bit, but it was all kind of generally like based in the Mungosh drainage. So. And living out of tents. Yes, <laughs> living out of town. <laughs> so you were actually in the town? So yeah, we were Portland? just, you know, Allen has their little town and their houses in there. Uh -huh. We were just a little bit away from Allen, oh, okay. but within walking distance. And we stayed at this guy, Phil Timpany's house, who's really awesome, awesome guy. We never got to met, but I just know from his work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we all set up tents in his property area. So we had a cabin to cook in in the mornings oh, and that's nice. for a little while we had a shower until it broke <laughs> <laughs> with a toilet it was yeah it was a, it's not guaranteed it's going to be like that every year <laughs> but that's how it was for us the, the highlight of the whole so trip is uh we we did a nine-day backpacking trip down to the Nakana river which is one of the tributaries to the taku and it is just loaded with wildlife you know you step out of the car when you first start hiking and there are just wolf and bear tracks and moose tracks <laughs> everywhere. That's yeah, incredible. it's incredible. <laughs> and it, we hike three days out, staying at beautiful camps along the way, hiking in the transition from kind of the the east side rain shadow of the, uh, the boundary range mm -hmm. into the real temperate forest down by the river. And we saw grizzlies on the river and we saw all king salmon right below where we were camping. And I caught some pinks, some uh, some bull trout, and some dolly varden. Some people caught steelhead. It was it was awesome. It was you a really special trout? place. That's yeah, so cool. some big bull trout. It was it was incredible. Oh my god! There are just wild berries everywhere. Just picking blueberries along the walk. Oh yeah, yeah ate a lot of blueberries. <laughs> I you, guess no, you go. I was just gonna say, be ready to sleep in tents for you know six to ten weeks or twelve weeks, however long your program is. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be ready for no showers. To speak of, um, I guess, I guess my big piece of advice is like the program really is what you make of it. You're going out there and not taking advantage of every situation that's presented to you. You're not gonna have as good of an experience as someone who does take advantage of all those situations. So if you're like really in this to like get an experience and like learn about conservation biology and learn about the local community and maybe like pick up on some language, then I think you're gonna get a lot out of the program. But if you go into it with like the wrong attitude and you don't take advantage of everything the program offers, then I think that's kind of on you and you're not gonna have as good of a time. Yeah, definitely just being open to the program mm -hmm. and hopefully making buddies with all the instructors and all yeah. the peers in it. So I was in a group of six and most people were from the Midwest and everyone was awesome. And the instructors were great and they had so many incredible stories from the other places they've instructed, including Patagonia and Botswana. And it, it was a really awesome time, I would say. And I made some, some good friends during it. 
I think our group really lucked out and that we all got along pretty well. Um, it was a lot of people, there were three of us from Utah and then a lot of people from like the Midwest. And yeah, we all got along well. Most students were like environmental or biology majors or botany majors. Our instructors, they were incredible. One of them was actually a marine biologist. The other one researches wolverines. And the third, uh, she's actually from Mongolia and she's currently researching soils. And so it was kind of like a very like diverse group even in the instructors. Um, and there was just a lot to learn from all of them. Like one thing that I'm interested in doing is like Peace Corps. One of the instructors was a Peace Corps volunteer. So I got to kind of network with her that in that sense and ask um, like some questions about that uh, opportunity. But also um, they're just really incredible with um, helping out with like doing research. So one student from the fall program in Mongolia, she actually returned over the summer to do uh, research on Vonsen Brew. She was able to make the connections to the strictly protected areas through one of the instructors. So, yeah. I guess it's kind of nice because like the community doesn't just like go away after, after your program, so. Um, I'm sure it wasn't all just roses and, and peaches and cream. <laughs> Were there challenges? Some, sometimes if you're not an organized person, you can be challenged because it could get a bit chaotic, just field work, mm -hmm. nature, right? You know, you have these plans and then they fall through and you have to make it work and use your time efficiently in some other way. So just being flexible is probably the hardest part with all of it. Yeah, I, I guess I would say flexibility too, just because when you're out there, <laughs> um, things just change really quickly and it's not like a structured okay, we're going to do this this day, this this day. Like everything kind of switches around depending on what is going on. And it's not always like in your control, which is like one thing that I had a hard time with just because I'm kind of a control freak. So anytime we'd have like a switch, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> okay. But also I feel like you learn a lot from that, like how to be flexible and how to make it work no matter what, so. I, I think Brown River was awesome and I couldn't be happier that I did it. It was a, a great way to spend my summer. Mm -hmm. I would totally recommend the program. Oh, one thought, um, especially with like your interest in like working with the local communities, I think it's incredible that Round River doesn't go to a location without being invited by a local group. So I think like really like the root of the program is working with local communities, which is very beneficial, I think. Most certainly, they're not intrusive at all. Yeah. They were, uh, Doug, the program director, was actually telling me that they they just won't go unless it kind of appears to them or it just, everything lines up perfectly. They don't push into any areas. Mm -hmm. This is Frank Black. I'm a professor of chemistry at Westminster. Last year while I was on sabbatical, I was uh, like a guest instructor, I guess, for the Round River program in Patagonia. We weren't doing anything that was specific to me. Um, it was kind of the normal Round River sort of stuff. And so a lot of what they do are surveys um, for an iconic deer that's kind of like the national symbol um, that's similar to like the bald eagle in the US. Um, and so there's a 
uh, only about 2,000 of them left in the world. And so it's also kind of like an endangered species. And so um, Chile puts uh, a fair amount of resources into trying to preserve it. And people there, there's kind of like a strong personal attachment to it sort of thing. And so a big part of Round River programs is going around and doing surveys in different parts of places where they think they might be and kind of doing long-term um, surveys in the, the same places to see how the populations may be changing. Uh, there wasn't a typical day. Uh, students spend over half their time in the field. Um, and so we're doing backpacking. Um, that's when we're doing like the surveys. We'd also do like botanical surveys. It wasn't all just um, the deer. It depends on where we're at. Um, that involves a fair amount of like off trail bushwhacking, um, which can be very challenging. Um, so some of the students come from backgrounds where they've done a fair amount of backpacking and others far less so. But for even the ones who were pretty experienced, like the level of bushwhacking was pretty intense at times, for sure. We would often go into the field for like a week at a time in different places. And then we'd come back into camp, um, let people kind of shower, wash up, do grocery shopping, things like that. Um, we would split classes between both the field and um, in town. Uh, obviously, if you're in the field, you can't take a projector and things like that. And so it kind of limits what you can do. But um, all the students are given a Kindle with like, like all the course readings. Um, and we kind of update those periodically. And then when we're in town, we have a projector and a cloth or a, you know, something to drape on the wall. And so we can kind of do a little bit more. I'd say none of it was really a, a low point of the trip. Um, one of the challenges for this particular semester is that there were a couple really big fires really close to where we kind of uh, have kind of a base camp. So the first part of the trip, um, and it changes if you go north to south or south to north, depending on if it's the fall or spring semester. Um, in this case, it was the fall. So we started in the far south around Punta Arenas and did like a, a four or five day kind of intro backpacking trip at a place called Cabo Froward. Um, and then we go up around uh, Torres del Paine National Park to kind of give students an idea of what like mass tourism looks like in Chile, because that's kind of the one place where there's a lot of people and all the other places we take students, it's like they're the only ones. And then we took a boat up through the fjords and spent a week at a small town where the only way you can get there is like a, you know, a two day trip on, on this ferry that comes once a week. And so there we did another backpacking trip, but we did a lot of community engagement there. The people there traditionally have, have a lot of their livelihoods related to like fishing and in particular collecting mollusks. And because of harmful algal blooms, red tides, that's kind of like put a big dent in their ability to, to kind of earn income. And so Round River has been trying to generate ideas for how they can increase tourism or find other ways other than like cypress logging, which also traditionally was a big way for them to get income of dealing with that. Um, and so then after, so the first like month we're moving around a lot. And then after that, we get to a town called Cochran where Round River kind of uses that as a base. So they have like a, their own campsite and Quincho and stuff on the river, which is really nice. And so there's no really typical day up until that point. After that, you know, we kind of spend about a third of the time in camp in Cochran. But this particular year, there were these huge fires southwest of Cochran. And so there were days where the air quality was super bad. Um, and that also meant a lot of our partners at national parks um, were tied up trying to deal with this wildfire. And so we're kind of left in limbo for a couple of weeks in terms of what we could do and where we could go. So I think that was pretty frustrating for students to be stuck in camp longer than we were expecting and us not be able to tell them, oh, in three days, we're going to go on this trip um, and do surveys in this area because we didn't really know what was going to happen. But things still worked out pretty well. And after that, you know, it's kind of back to normal once the fires. Um, things, it got cold, it like snowed a couple times, even, you know, I guess that's the equivalent of August. 
um, and that kind of helped put out some of the fires. And so after that, I was back to go into the field for about a week, come back out for three or four days, and then go back in some place else. Yeah, just keep an open mind. Um, expect to see some really cool stuff. Uh, some of the places we take students are just absolutely beautiful, and it's not the same places every time. Um, going back in the fjords on like little fishermen's boats that we would charter for you know a few days, just incredible places where no one else is there. The academics are pretty focused on like conservation biology and um, ecological like field methods sort of stuff. Most students are going to learn some things that are similar to what they've learned before if they have an ecology background, but the students there came from pretty diverse backgrounds, including one student who was a music major. Um, so you get to meet students from diverse backgrounds from all over the U.S. Um, with different experiences and you go to a lot of really beautiful places. Uh, yeah. No, I had a great experience. That, you know, it's a great a great op opportunity for students to do a foreign study program. Um, at one point, they do homestays with, with people, and a lot of them uh, were out on farms. And so it's mostly um, like sheep farms in the area. And so for some students, that was a really eye-opening like opportunity to like chase sheep and <laughs> yeah, castrate sheep and kill sheep and skin sheep and eat a lot of mutton and yeah. Cool. How big is your group? So. Altogether, I think there were maybe 16, 17 students. Okay. Yeah, so um, they split that into two gr different groups of students. And so there was, they kind of give them two names like each time. Um, and so in this case, there was a group of eight and a group of seven. So I spent about the first half of the term mostly just with one because the two groups don't meet at all until about halfway through. And then once we were based in Cochran, um, we would do some classes together and then the excursions, they would typically still split up and go their own way and then come back. So that helps keep the student experience small and more manageable just in terms of there's only so many people you can fit in each vehicle and, and that sort of stuff. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. And as always, we'll have more to share in the coming weeks. If you want to learn more about Round River, you can find them at roundriver.org. And we definitely want to send thanks to Elizabeth, Kelsey, Rain, and Frank for talking with us. Our theme music is by Pixie and the Partygrass Boys, and they put on a pretty amazing live show. You should check them out. Thanks again. Until next time, enjoy the mountains. Bye.